and you don't know who Rumi is. Okay, that's not the point. Look, we've been married for, what, 27 years? And I, I talk about Gene Shepard all the time. Do you even listen to me? What makes you think I don't? Okay. I'll sweep the driveway once a week. And do the laundry? Sure. Won't happen. She doesn't trust me with the bleach. From Hollywood, it's out of my mind. I'm Jay Douglas, and in episode 64, you know, almost as familiar as the 12 days of Christmas are the 24 hours of a Christmas story, the 1983 cult film classic that airs on the TNT cable network all Christmas Day. Now, the partridge in a pear tree of the Christmas story is the raconteur, radio host, hipster author, and improvisational storyteller, Gene Shepard. His first name is spelled J-E-A-N, French-Canadian style. Well, he was born on the south side of Chicago, like bad, bad Leroy Brown, I suppose, back in 1921. He was raised in Hammond, Indiana. He had no idea the trials and frustrations of growing up on Hammond's southeast side neighborhood of Hessville would become the basis for thousands of hours of improvised stories on New York radio stations. Now, it's impossible to describe a Gene Shepard radio show. I, re I remember listening to him back on WOR when I was growing up, and one minute he'd be telling this wonderful improvised story, and the next minute he would be talking about art or literature or music, and he'd slip into a rant. You never know what was going to come next. And I suppose, in large measure, that was due to the fact that Shepard himself didn't know. Shepard really wasn't too well-known outside of New York City and, and, and maybe among a cadre of loyal listeners who came to know him through bootleg tapes of his radio shows that somehow managed to circulate throughout the United States without the help of the Internet. Back in the early 60s, he improvised a series of stories about a young boy who wanted a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas. Some of the stories wound up being printed in Playboy magazine and uh, later in his book, In God We Trust, All Others Must Pay Cash. But most of the material lay dormant until, okay, here's where I bring in the experts. One is Eugene Bergman. He's an author and a Shepherd historian. His book, Excelsior, You Fathead, The Art and Enigma of Gene Shepherd, is the Bible for Shepherd fans looking to know more about their enigmatic hero. And the other is Tom Lipscomb, writer, playwright, editor, publisher, and media executive. He published some of Shepard's books, and he became close friends with both Shepard and his wife, Lee Brown. The three of us got together in Eugene's home on Long Island, and in front of some friends and family, Tom interviewed Eugene, uh, and at times it went the other way around. So now, through the magic of Christmas, along with some very cool recording equipment my wife gave me as a present last year, here's a Christmas story you won't find on TNT, no matter how long you watch. When I was um, in college in uh, 1955, I was, I was told by somebody that there was a guy on the radio that told that spoke for hours and hours improvising was absolutely fascinating that and that i gene would be interested in him that's eugene bergman our shepherd historian so i began listening and i was absolutely fascinated because uh he was like a mentor not only to me but to uh many many other high school and college students and older people also so what was he a mentor about? I mean, that's kind of a loose phrase. Uh, what was it that you found so fascinating in these programs? And that's Tom Lipscomb, Shepard's publisher. He was somebody who had a mind that engaged me, intellectual interests, 
all kinds of interest in the arts and what was going on in the world. And it was though he was talking just to me, and a lot of people say that, that, uh, that it seemed as though he was talking just to, to them. And he was a mentor to many, many people because he engaged them in what seemed like an intellectual dialogue, and of course it was just an improvised monologue. About what? Fishing? Uh, world politics? The nuclear bomb? Uh, what, was, what were the areas that a kid your age, and where were you living at the time? I was living in Richmond Hill, Queens. So what specifically was it that you felt he was your guide into the world about? Literally everything, which is saying maybe almost nothing. Uh, literature, he would uh, read occasionally from poetry and even from uh, Robert Service. He would talk about uh, books. He would talk about uh, films. He would talk about anything that crossed his mind. And that was the fascinating thing for me. Did he repeat these obsessions, or were there new things coming up all the time you weren't aware of that he was introducing you to? Mainly, he improvised new stuff all the time, and, and it was always something new and different. You never knew what he was going to do. Maybe he would um, play uh, on one of his goofy instruments. He he played the kazoo very well. He played the nose flute. He played the Jew's harp. And he also did a weird thing called Kopfspielen, pardon my German, which was knocking out tunes by rapping his knuckles on his head. He introduced me to the Village Voice, and I began subscribing, and I subscribed for decades. He also uh, once had uh, uh, Herb Gardner, uh, the playwright, who was most famous, I think, for A Thousand Clowns, which first was a play and then was a, um, a movie. Well, I got interested in Herb Gardner, and I found out a little later that uh, Shepard was very upset with his close friend Herb Gardner because Herb had made the main character somewhat of a takeoff on Gene Shepard's characteristics. And Shepard said, they've stolen my life. He didn't get paid for it. That was a major part here. <laughs> Probably. Uh, Shepard was frequently upset because he, he didn't get uh, what he was due, including cash. Did this come out in the radio programs? Did they seem to be an angry guy like the guy in, in Thousand Clowns in the radio program and broadcast, or was it a different personality entirely? Occasionally he'd talk about uh, people who were stealing the audios of his shows and broadcasting them without paying anything. Um, he didn't often get uh, angry, um, but he just engaged you in what appeared to be a dialogue on all of these fascinating subjects. Did you want to meet him at some point? I definitely did. And one of the things that he did in his early days is during commercials, he would um, talk to people who called into the radio station. So I called in once, and I got on the air, and I, am, I was so nervous, so embarrassed, 
I couldn't think of a thing to say. He must have thought to himself, what a klutz. <laughs> the other time was after he had published uh, uh, the book that he had, the hoax called I Libertine Hoax. That was quite an event in publishing. What, what was that about? Well, he went into a bookstore knowing about a book that existed and asked the, uh, the person there, about this book, the person said, I haven't heard of it, I'll look it up in my listings of all books in print. No, nope, can't find it. You must be wrong, sir, can't exist. Well, this really upset Shepard, and he started talking to his audience. On the, you know, people have lists, and they base their life on lists, and this list business is ridiculous. Let's create a book that does not exist and let's fool publishers, booksellers, the general public, let's fool them all into thinking this is a real book and let's call it I Libertine. And they came up with it, he and his um, listeners came up with a, uh, an author, Frederick R. Ewing, a famous uh, authority on 18th century English erotica, and uh, this went on for a few weeks, and people were fascinated. They go into bookstores. If one person went into a bookstore, the guy would say, ah, you got the title wrong. But if a number of people did, the uh, bookseller would wonder and go back to the distributor, and the distributor would wonder and try and figure it out. Nobody could figure out anything about this book, which obviously must exist because people were asking for it. Well, after a month or two, uh, the Wall Street Journal asked if they could expose the hoax, and they did. Ian Ballantyne, the publisher, got a hold of the story and said, hey, why don't we actually do a book called I Libertine? So he got Shepard together with Theodore Sturgeon, the science fiction author, Sturgeon wrote most of the book based on Shepard's idea, and it was published, and it supposedly sold several hundred thousand copies. Did he do anything else like that? Was, was he into pranks on his audience? Uh, that, all that, that case, he wasn't pulling a prank on his audience. He and his audience were pulling a prank on everybody else. Did he, any other Shepard campaigns you can remember that were famous? Uh, yes, there is one thing that he did, and there are very few instances of it on tape that have come to light so far, and that's what he called hurling an invective. He, in the middle of the night, would tell his audience to go to their windows, open the window, put your radio loudspeaker out, and turn up the volume as loud as it'll go, and then be quiet. And I'm going to yell something. I'm going to hurl an invective. And he would hurl something like, all right, I see you. You better put up your hands or you're going to get shot. Or something like that. And he did a number of these. It was one of the things he did in the uh, late 50s, at least. Do you remember a campaign he started called Splat? I do. I can't remember the exact wording, but he was very upset at, at dogs pooping on the sidewalk. I can remember the exact wording. It was a Society for the Prevention of Leaving Animal Turds. <laughs> <laughs> and he very seriously, 
<laughs> pursued this for a while on the radio uh, and saying how terrible it was and maybe um, dogs should wear underwear. <laughs> I don't know how that all ended. Well, it ended with a city ordinance uh, which has people carrying around paper bags and plastic bags to this day. So that was very influential activity by, by Shep. During the war, as you know, because you wrote a book about his experiences, uh, he was stuck down in the fort, southern Florida on some god-awful army base, which is certainly beat the alternative. Uh, but what was he doing there, and what lifelong fascination came out of it? Well, actually, his lifelong fascination with, uh, with ham radio began when he was about uh, 14 or 15 or 16. Did you think there was anything odd about a guy who was on the radio for hours every day going home to be on the radio for hours every night? <laughs> I'm not sure how clear I was that he uh, was that involved in ham radio. Certainly he talked about it sometimes, uh, about his being a kid and being involved. But what I found out later was that there were people who would just end up talking to him on ham radio after he'd been on all evening long. They didn't know him, he didn't know them, and he would talk for hours to them, just as though he were doing a broadcast. And in fact, um, I'm told that if you were someplace where he was and, 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 and introduced uh, to Shepard, he would corner you and, and give you a 45-minute improvised monologue. One thing, just to give a little background, Gene could set situations, even if you just listened to the show the first time, you didn't know who Benny and Strick and, and Flick and everybody was. I'll give you one example of a Shepard setup. Gene's dad, Pop, I guess. Old uh, man. Oh, the old man. And his best friend, I can't remember the best friend. Who was the best friend? Flick. Flick, Okay go down to the railroad because Gene's dad has, has ordered a mail order, build your own house. Okay. And they're down there with two cases of beer and they're got the railroad car on the siding and they're going to take the stuff out, put it in the car and take it to the site, except they start to drink the beer. So as they bring down the cartons, they get curious what's inside them and they start opening them up. And then they start to make a little a little mini bathroom here and all this. Then it starts to rain. And the upshot of this whole story is a reductio into a totally disastrous house that never gets built, parts left by the side of the road, two drunken men reeling off home. Whoever would have come up with that on, a, on the fly, an ad-lib situation? Shepard's work is filled with stories like this. Well, that's exactly what... Uh... Uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, had in mind when he said that there was a similarity between himself and Shepard. And I have the, uh, an exact quote from Jerry Seinfeld here. He said, quote, he really formed my entire comedic sensibility. I learned how to do comedy from Gene Shepard. That's quite a thing to hear from Jerry Seinfeld. But if you come to a Christmas story, it's interesting because no one who was not exposed to Shepard, and most of the people who saw the film, didn't know who Gene Shepard was. As they said on the set when the film was being made, Shep would go around playing celebrity, and nobody seeing it shot knew who the hell he was. So the, the artistic reality of the world Shepard created 
has its own reality, even though kids today who love it and see it, there's a reason why it's on all day Christmas, uh, are tuned in to the world of 1940 uh, Hammond, Indiana, uh, which is a world to them as, as imaginary as The Walking Dead. For me, one of the interesting things is that Oh, roughly 50 million people, it said, uh, watch A Christmas Story in that 24-hour period. But I would imagine that 90% of the people who watch it don't know who Gene Shepard is, and almost nobody reads the titles to films. If they did, they would see one from the works of Gene Shepard. Two, narrative voice of Ralphie as an adult, looking back, is Shepard himself. Three, the film is based on Shepard's short story collection in God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And four, Shepard co-wrote the script with his wife, Lee Brown, and the film's director, Bob Clark. And I'll bet most people don't know that he even has a teeny little cameo role in the film. Well, he and Lee both have a cameo role in the film. The interesting thing is that Bob Clark, who made the film, was the most contemporaneous teenage uh, storyteller of our time with the great hit Porky's. So who would have thought a guy who could make a gross out like Porky's could also be a sensitive enough director to make a Christmas story, a classic from the pre-war period? Uh, but what, what, what is it that's the continuity? Clark had a great eye for a great story that he knew how to make happen on the screen. But he did so having to drag Shepard off the set because he was continually interfering and trying to run the movie. One could imagine that that's exactly the way Gene Shepard was. The story about Bob Clark is that he was one day uh, driving to a date and he heard this guy talking on the radio. And he got so involved that he stopped his car and forgot about the date and just listened to this guy on the radio. Do you, do you remember the story he heard on the radio? It was the licking the flagpole story. Ah. So that's what got him when he licked the flagpole and got his tongue stuck to it. That stopped Bob Clark dead in his tracks. And Bob Clark became so fascinated with uh, Gene Shepard that he said to himself, someday I'm going to make a movie out of some of Shepard's stories. And producers didn't want to do it. But he had just made Porky's, which made them a lot of money. And he said, you gotta let me make this movie. So they finally did, they made the movie, and it was hardly distributed anywhere at Christmas time. So it's only because Turner put it on uh, 24 hours at Christmas that it really has hit the big time. Well, you were talking about the 50 million people who see it. I would guess that 40 million of them have seen it more than once. Uh, and I think one of the most fascinating things about your Christmas story, it's become, remember in the movie Blade Runner, the girl who they'd imprinted with a past who was really a replicant? Christmas story is a replicant past for those who haven't had a Christmas like Gene Shepard provided. They've incorporated it. And in Christmas Story, we repeat it because we're trying to repeat a past we didn't have. Well, my wife and I watch it. I usually have it on most of that 24 hours. <laughs> I watch it once or twice every Christmas. 
And like most people, we know what the jokes are that are coming, the funny bits, and we laugh anyway, even though we know what the funny parts are. And despite the fact that they're so hilarious, they really show uh, Shepard's, what he would call realistic view of life, what other people would call irony, but he called um, realistic. Almost all the set scenes that we laugh at are really quite negative. Poor Flick with his tongue stuck to a, a cold pole and hurting. Everybody else ditched him. All Every his dear friends all ran in after recess and let him stick it out there. <laughs> and and uh, Scott Farkas, the, the village uh, bully, who everybody, all the kids in the neighborhood and everyone watching the movie, hate this Scott Farkas. And Scott throws a snowball and hits Ralphie in the face with it. And Ralphie becomes so upset. He becomes a raving, incoherent, inhuman maniac. So, yes, it's very funny, but look, and satisfying that Scott got what was coming to him, but he turned Ralphie into something less than what we would like to call human or humane. Well, what fascinated me by this Christmas story was I was in on the creation of it because Lee had kept, I, I'd have any number of dinners with, with Lee and with, with, uh, with Shep. And inevitably, the, the dinner would devolve into, after a couple of drinks, Shep complaining about how he's never had proper recognition, how other guys are winning this prize and that prize. All he gets is the Playboy Humor Award. Other people are having movies made of their stuff. Nobody makes movies of anything that he does. It was one complaint after him. This went on because Shep went on a long time. This would go on for hours late into the night. Uh, and here would sit Lee, this blonde, blue-eyed beauty with eyes vacant. Uh, she'd heard this a million times. And guess whose fault it was? It was Lee's fault. She couldn't sell his works of genius, this terrific stuff. She couldn't get him off the ground. It was all Lee's fault. And Lee would sit there and say, there's only one of your stories that really translates for film terms. She was his agent. She knew what sold and what didn't sell. So it's the one with that Red Rider BB gun. That's the one that'll make you money. He said, I'm not going to put out something as lightweight as that. I'm in the category of George Aid and Mark Twain. I'm not just some humorist who wins the Playboy Humor Award. So here we had Lee Brown trying like mad to sell what would become a Christmas story. And for 10 years, Gene Shepard wouldn't let her sell the story. What he once said was that, and you can see it from the beginning of the story uh, as it's printed, this was an anti-war or anti-gun story because he starts the, the story as being in Horn and Hardits, I think, and here was a lady with a sign. It says, you know, ban um, toy guns. And this got... Shepard started thinking, I guess, and, and that's how he uh, came up with the story. So he actually did have a point to it, which I think got lost in the translation. I think that the interesting thing is it backs up your 
point is what is the repeating refrain for poor Ralphie every time he talks about the BB gun? Some woman stands up and tells him, that's a terrible idea. You'll shoot your eye out. Women are continually in Ralphie's face on his deep desire to have this Red Rider BB gun, just like the lady in Horn and Hard Arts. <laughs> Another person who, t who tells him that is when he is going up to see uh, Santa Claus with his young brother. And uh, here is uh, Santa Claus, who is it's getting uh, ready to close the store, and Santa Claus is just interested in uh, going home and being done with these little kids. But there is Ralphie. He can't think of what he wants, but then he says, okay, yeah, uh, Santa Claus, yeah, I want a football. And Santa Claus says, okay, get this kid out of here. They start to push Ralphie down the slide. And Ralphie, I don't know how he does it, but he stops himself from going down a slippery slide. And he said, no, I want a BB gun, and describes it. And Santa Claus, good old ho, 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 jolly old Saint Nick, says, kid, you'll shoot your eye out. And Santa's big black boot comes and literally pushes Ralphie in the forehead down the slide. Is that the way we want to think of old St. Nick? Well, Gene did a great deal in his stories, as you pointed out, juxtaposing what we think is normal and what's really normal. And there's a perfect example, turning Santa into someone whose black boot is in your face, like Orwell's story from 1984. When the miracle of a Christmas story takes place, sort of reminds me of the old story of Pandora's box the Greeks wrote about. Pandora was given this gorgeous golden box full of jewels on the outside. She opens it up only to find it's full of terrible trouble, stings, pain, suffering. And she's just in terrible trouble when finally at the very end, when she's hurting and lying on the ground and dying, up comes a rainbow fairy of hope. And in this particular case, Lee Brown, who had the business head on her shoulders, because Gene spent every cent he ever saw, okay, his or anybody else's, uh, was going to be flat broke if he ever lost his job. Was it WR he was with? Uh, and it was going to happen. She knew time was running out. She kept trying to get Gene to make that movie or do something so they get some money because they had nothing in the bank. So finally, they they lose the show. They're literally living on their last dime, and the Bob Clark Christmas story deal goes down, which not only gives Gene money, not a lot of money compared to what it might have been, but enough money to make Gene's life considerably initially. And secondly, it gives him a reason for being. It gives him a reason to be able to use his talent and ability. So they're given a couple of extra professional years there as this movie comes out. And then finally, the royalties start coming in, and they get to move to Sanibel Island uh, in, a, in a paradise for them at the end of their days. And they die, what, within a year of each other? Yes, and I have a feeling that somehow um, they were so close and Lee was so important to him that he could not live without her. I think that's definitely true. <laughs> I don't think he could have made it in the last 10, 15 years without Lee because she was organizing everything. I mean, she... We saw each other dozens and dozens of times because I was his publisher and we got to be friends and Lee and I got to be friends. Uh, but she made all the arrangements. Jean never made any arrangements. 
So everything he was doing business-wise, I know Lee did. So she became an exoskeleton, and he was allowed to use his talent and range around and bounce off the walls to do whatever he was going to do, and she kept him together. So it's kind of a wonderful story. Talking uh, about them finally uh, making some money off a Christmas story, I think it was in the second set of uh, Gene Shepard's America that he did an episode where he is a rich guy just walking off his yacht. And he says, you know, I finally made it. Rich at last. Thank God I'm rich at last. <laughs> and although it's supposedly this guy walking off his yacht, I'm sure he was thinking of himself. And with that, it's time to hoist a mug of eggnog to Gene Shepard and wrap up episode 64 of the Out of My Mind podcast. My thanks to Tom Lipscomb and Eugene Bergman for this special Christmas gift of their time and firsthand knowledge of Gene Shepard and a Christmas story. Thanks also to my longtime friend Jack Ostel, who connected me with Tom and who provided transportation and more during my visit to New York to record the show. Thanks to my wife for, for forgetting all about our leaf-strewn driveway, and special thanks to you for your support of this little podcast venture over the years. You know I couldn't do this show without you. I'll be back from time to time in 2019 with more little-known stories about well-known stuff. If you have an idea for an episode, why don't you give me a call? The number is 323-465-3322. Or you can send me an email at jdouglas, that's the letter J, Douglas, at thetheaterofyourmind.com. And theater is spelled with an E-R. Leave it to me to have an email address that comes with assembly instructions like an Ikea bookcase. From all of us at the Out of My Mind podcast and the Theater of Your Mind, have a shepherific holiday season, a happy and healthy new year, and a very Merry Christmas. Story. I'm Jay Douglas. Out of My Mind is produced by Penny Summers and is a copyrighted feature of the Theater of Your Mind Incorporated, Hollywood, California. <laughs>